0: Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is where we've got to in the, in the journey. Uh, we're going to be looking at prayer this morning. I'm going to read again a bit. I feel a bit like I did a week or two ago with a good Samaritan. And you're thinking, goodness, this is so familiar. Is there anything more familiar than this? So don't look out for new things. Look out for reminders and look out just for the voice of God stirring you. Uh, As I read it, it might sound slightly odd because we all memorized Matthew's version when we were kids and Luke's version is very slightly different. So Luke chapter 11 uh, and I'm just going to read verses one to four and I'm probably not going to get very far (laughs) today. Uh, This is so important and we'll take our time and if it takes a few weeks, it takes a few weeks to to cover what Jesus is going to teach here. (laughs) Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And that's it. Remarkable, so short. Jesus is asked to teach them about prayer. I have books about prayer. I have lecture courses about prayer. Uh, There are video series online about prayer, sermon series about prayer. (laughs) Jesus was asked to teach about prayer. And in Greek, in Luke's version, 38 words. Matthew, we've got 57. Luke, we've got 38. That's it. The one who had the most incredible prayer life, the one who was the greatest teacher ever. And when asked to teach about prayer, he spoke 38 words. And he said, that's it. <laughs> it's amazing to be able to share intimate communication with God. This gift of prayer that we have is absolutely incredible. And yet, as I'll maybe allude to in a few minutes, we can feel so bad at it <laughs> and indifferent to it. But what a gift to be able to share intimate Communication with the living God who created and sustains this entire universe. There's a scene from Revelation that I try to hold in my mind on a Tuesday night at about 7 45 before we pray, and as well when I'm praying on my own. And before we get to Luke, I just want to put, put this scene before you. It's actually in Revelation 8, but I want to read a few verses from Revelation 5 just to get the context of what it's like in heaven. It's rowdy. Okay, it's a bit raucous. Uh, Verse 11 of Revelation 5, where John is getting a glimpse, not a glimpse of the future, I don't believe, in this portion of Revelation. He's getting a glimpse behind the veil. Revelation means unveiling. It's like the curtain is drawn back and we see what's going on in a different realm. And in Revelation 5, we're getting a glimpse to the scene in heaven. Verse 11, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. <laughs> That's everything. <laughs> Saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's a noisy place. Just continuous adoration, praise, worship is, is what we see. This This picture of heaven. And then in Revelation 8, Verse one, we read that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It really hit me a month or two ago. Silence in heaven. All goes quiet. The mischievous part of me wonders: Did the heavenly sound and lighting team run out of batteries for the for the mics? What what went wrong that everything suddenly went quiet at this huge worship fest in heaven? And when we read on in Revelation eight you'll see what causes heaven to fall silent. I saw seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Heaven falls silent because somebody's praying. And it's all, I can, and I'm, I'm running here with my imagination. I think revelation invites us to use our imagination um, prayerfully, but I can imagine an angel in heaven just just shouting, "Stop! Everybody!" Quiet, somebody's praying. And heaven is giving attention to the words of that person who's praying. It's a lovely picture. These, these prayers rising up before God, the prayers of God's people and the worship stops so that attention, full attention. If you ever think that your prayers are not important, that's a glimpse behind the veil to how seriously I've written beside this in my Bible. Heaven takes our prayers Seriously. Those moments when you just utter out a feeble little cry to God. Heaven listens. Heaven pays attention. And then in verse 5, there's a response. Once those prayers have risen before God, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. There's a response on the earth to the prayers that have gone up before God in heaven peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. So our prayers bring about activity in heaven. They're listened to. There was a French philosopher and mathematician called Blaise Pascal. If some of you can remember A-Level maths, you might've been tormented by one of his triangles. He liked triangles. And he said, this is this, this guy, like he, he died before he was 40, he was, we're talking seven, early 17th century in France. He said, God instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures the dignity of causality. Now that's a sort of big term, the dignity of causality. Causality means cause and effect. It's basically saying that by God inviting us to pray, he has given us the dignity of being able to participate with him in what he is doing. That he confers that dignity upon us. That his action and what he does can be in response to the prayers of his people. That's the dignity that, that he gives to us. There is a link between our prayer and between God's actions. And then one of my favorite quotes, and this is the end of the quotes I think for today, and maybe one more later, is Karl Barth. Swiss, I think Swiss, theologian of the last century, wonderful, militant statement, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Oh boy. (laughs) If ever there needs to be an uprising against the disorder of the world, it is now. And God's people do that in prayer. Prayer is seen as a quiet thing. It's seen as a sometimes as a private thing, as a as a shut away thing. And Karl Barth says no. It, it, the act of prayer is an act of defiance and an act of uprising against disorder. This incredible gift, this awesome privilege, and you know what? I feel so bad at it. <laughs> so bad at it. I've walked with God 25 years nearly and I still feel so bad at it that I just haven't tapped in to the depth or the wealth. Don't we all carry just a little bit of shame regarding the imbalance between how important prayer is and how feeble we feel at it? Don't we all find ourselves at some time or another worried about praying out loud in front of people in case our words are wrong or we misquote a verse or we get tongue-tied? Don't we all worry a little bit that God has lots of really important stuff to do and we're just a pain in the divine neck? Don't we all know the the sinking feeling of facing something really difficult? Feeling the urge to cry out to God and then realising we haven't had a decent prayer time for two or three days and maybe we, we can't cry out in our, in our urgency or in our emergency. We feel that he might be huffing with us because we haven't talked to him enough. Don't we all sometimes look at our watches when we pray? We think, I'm going to pray for a certain period of time and we glance at the watch. Just to let you know, there was a lady called Teresa of Avila, another sort of great saint and great prayer warrior of the past. She had an hourglass and when she was praying, she would turn the hourglass and that would be her timer for prayer. And she actually said at times she would lift it and shake it to try to get the sand to go through quicker because <laughs> she was struggling in prayer. That encourages me, okay? That encourages me. Because sometimes we read about we read about these great saints and their great prayer lives and instead of it inspiring us, which is I'm sure the intent of the author, sometimes we listen to it and we're like... Oh no. Many times have you heard that quote about Martin Luther where he had a really busy day ahead so he doubled his prayer time in the morning from two hours to four or whatever it was. And I heard that again the other day and I just thought, oh no. <laughs> you know, that, just, that one kills me. Don't we all feel powerless sometimes in the face of evil and tragedy and trauma and hopelessness all the time wishing that we had spent more time in prayer? Don't we know the feeling of listening to someone else pray? Maybe a leader or a mature Christian and thinking, I'd love to be able to pray like that. We need help in prayer. I need help in prayer. You're not listening to an expert, okay? In the book of Acts, we see the prayer of the apostles. From from chapter one, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. In Acts 4, the room shakes at the end of a prayer meeting. In Acts 9, in response to prayer, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision during prayer on the, on the roof of the house that causes the gospel to go to Cornelius and to the Gentiles. In Acts 12, Peter is in prison and it's the prayers of the church that see him miraculously brought out of prison. So we see the prayer lives of these guys, but they also needed help. They also needed to start somewhere. They also one day went to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. They needed to learn about this. You see, these guys watched Jesus and they they saw what he did. They saw him cast out demons. They didn't ask him to teach them how to do that. They heard him preach and they didn't ask him to teach them how to do that. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him feed the multitude. They didn't ask him. The only thing in their entire journey with Jesus, the only thing that they asked him to teach them was how to pray. It was the first and only thing that they asked him to teach them. They knew that prayer was fundamental to the core of who he was and everything he did. It all overflowed out of a life of prayer, I think summed up most beautifully in mark one thirty five very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He had a discipline, he got away on his own times that we read that he left the crowd the crowd were coming and they wanted ministry mentioned it last week I think the disciples hadn't time to eat and he says come on let's get away come away and be with me get restored get refreshed get built up that's what he did that was his daily practice early in the morning while it was still dark is that our practice early in the morning, or maybe in the middle of the day, or maybe late in the evening, whatever it may be, whatever sort of person you are, is that our practice? They saw that in Jesus, and they said, we need that. All these things that they did in the book of Acts that came out of prayer, they learned it from Jesus. And, and they realized that, that everything in his ministry was what he was seeing the Father doing. It's a wonderful verse in John 5, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do whatever he sees his father doing. So there was that, and, and this is the desire of a church that wants to do mission and ministry, the, the desire of, of, of leadership. We want to see what God is doing and then do that. We don't just want to do whatever people normally do. In prayer, we want to discern. We want to be aligned. You know, this word alignment is always in my mind as well on a Tuesday night, that we want to be aligned with God. God, what are you doing? Because Jesus saw what God was doing and he got into it. What are you doing now, God? And Tyler Statton, who runs 24-7 Prayer in the United States says that when Jesus taught his disciples about prayer, he didn't tell them to pray more or to pray harder, but to pray differently. He gave them a way to pray. And I believe the Lord's Prayer is a model for prayer. When you read Matthew's version, the way that that Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer is by saying, this then is how you should pray pray like this. In Luke's version, he says, when you pray, say. I think it's fine to recite the Lord's Prayer. I think it's fine. Absolutely grand to recite it word for word. I don't think there's a problem with that. I think it is, it is even more useful as a model, that as we go through our own prayers each day, that, that we work through some of these things, that we go in order and let let you know there's no better way to do it. I don't care what books we've read, what courses we've gone to, there is no better way to do it than this. There is no better way. And I remember that night that we were here and we were listening to the 24-7 prayer gathering and, and they were saying that 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 their practice is basically, you know, they were sort of they were talking about this new practice that they had, not new practice, but this, this thing that they were doing with renewed vigor and you're waiting for some great you know breakthrough tactic for prayer and they said we're praying the lord's prayer (laughs) and it's simple but it's the best way there's no better way pray differently and jesus gives a prayer that is really saturated with the mission of god and with his own career jesus you know your kingdom come what what did he preach everywhere he went he preached the kingdom of god has come near Give us this day our daily bread. What did he do? He fed the multitudes. He he had solidarity with the poor. He felt the needs of the of the broken. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive everyone. He forgave people. He you know, your sins are forgiven. Rise up, you know, get up off your bed and walk. He forgave people. Lead us not into temptation. He was the one himself led into temptation in the wilderness. So this prayer sums up the mission of God and the mission of Jesus so so accurately and so completely. And in Matthew's version, we also have at the end of it, deliver us from evil, which again is what Jesus himself prayed in the garden where he wanted to be delivered from the evil that lay ahead of him. And he asked the disciples to pray likewise. So this prayer is utterly aligned with the mission of Jesus. And if we pray this prayer, if we use this model, we will never be caught thinking, I wonder am I praying right? Ever. You'll never find yourself praying in a prayer meeting or on your own and thinking, I wonder, am I even on the right track here at all? If we pray this, if we use this as our structure, you're on the right track. (laughs) Always on the right track. You don't have to worry about it. You are praying the very heart of God. And like many of you, I learned this prayer as a child, but I still wonder if I've learned how to pray and I'm still learning, and I'm still open, and I'm still feeling the need to go back to the drawing board. I've had many powerful moments in prayer, many, and many of them here, right here in this room, in the dark, cold, late at night, walking about with about four jumpers on and a a big woolly hat, praying, and just felt God, felt breakthrough, but I still yearn for a deeper intimacy, not just the feelings of of power and the feelings of breakthrough, but that just constant intimacy. So we might be in this for a few weeks. I don't want to rush. Linda asked me last night how I was getting on in, in preparation. The, the Saturday night question, How are you getting on for the morning? <laughs> and I said, well, I think it's okay, which was a lie. Um, and, and I said, you know, we're hitting the Lord's Prayer. And she said to me, <laughs> she said, how far do you think you'll get? And I basically said, Father, <laughs> that's, that's, probably, that's the aim. Um, I, had, I had added on, you know, Hallowed Be Your Name, and then I thought, no, that's too ambitious. So we're not going to go this slow every week, but we're going to go this slow today. Father, this is, this is relational. Stop viewing prayer as transactional. God is not the almighty vending machine in the sky that we are shaking trying to get a sandwich to fall out of all right? That is not, don't, do not view prayer in that way. This is relational. This word, father, is the language of intimacy and the language of phenomenal power. Phenomenal power. Now, most of us, when we think about our earthly fathers, probably, you know, we can understand the intimacy of a child with an earthly father but you're maybe thinking, David, what way do you raise your kids that they think of father as being phenomenal power? <laughs> but we'll get to that a wee bit later. It's not to do with me. Let's talk about intimacy. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as father a few times, but not very many. I listened this morning just as Aaron was praying, I didn't keep count. But I think probably the number of times he said Father in one prayer was close to the number of times that God is referred to as Father in the entire Old Testament. It is not that common. And when he's referred to as Father, for example, Psalm 68 verse 5, a Father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. The word for Father is Ab, just Ab, that's it. Not Abba, just Ab. We'll get to Abba, but the Old Testament word is Ab, and according to scholars, there is no evidence in the literature of ancient Judaism that anyone ever personally addressed God as my father, Abba, or Ab. There's just no evidence of that prior to Jesus, this This word "ab" is sort of I guess to try and give you an idea of what it would be like in our culture, it would be the word "father" or the word dad," which is the way most adults might refer to their father, not not all but most adults would refer to their father as dad you're not likely to get a forty year old referring to their father as "dada you might, but it's you know it's probably not not that common, nothing wrong with it, just in case you do um but it's 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 this, this word is more dad, whereas Jesus, whenever he came along, he said Abba, which is like an infant saying Dada or Daddy. And I think, you know, some, some people want to, to swing away from that a wee bit, the, the infancy of that, but Jesus said he used the word that an infant would use for Daddy. And I don't think we should start our prayers by saying, Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) I heard somebody do that once and it just sounded wrong. But Jesus is expressing the intimacy of an infant. He's doing something that is out of the ordinary. At some point, for many of us as we grow up, Daddy becomes Dad, usually. But Jesus here is using the language of an infant and all the pictures that you have heard of of an infant running and climbing up on their father's lap for a place of intimacy and security and trust are entirely true <laughs> and entirely accurate that is who we come to abba a place of strength a place of intimacy a place of security a place where we can tell our stories of the day, a place where we we feel that we are valued and that we are being given time and that we are being given attention. That's what Jesus is telling us in this word Abba. And, and when he uses the word as he prays this word Abba, it gets him into trouble. In John 5 18, it says that, that they tried all the more to kill him for two reasons. Not only now because he was breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father. This got Jesus killed. (laughs) This prayer, this complete break away from, from the culture that he was in to refer to God as Abba with this intimate, personal address. The culture that he was in, they did not even say the word Yahweh. The Old Testament covenant name of God that he gave to Moses early in Exodus, they didn't use that phrase or that word. And the reason they didn't use it was because they were scared of breaking the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. So the way they made it certain that they wouldn't do that was they decided we're not going to say it at all. And they didn't even say Yahweh. And in that culture where nobody even dared to refer to God as Yahweh, Jesus rocks up and says Abba. Amazing, amazing. It, and it filled the religious people with rage, this intimacy that he had with God. And, it, and, and we can look at this and say, well, okay, Jesus, that's you. You're the son of God. You're God, the son. It's fine for you to refer to Abba, but surely we can't do it as well. Surely we have to stay a, a wee bit further away. There are two things that allow us to refer to God as Abba. The first one is the cross. In John, as you read through John's gospel, you will see Jesus referring to the disciples as disciples and as um, servants and as friends. But after the cross and the resurrection, and only after the cross and the resurrection, he refers to them as brothers. Brothers. In John 20, verse 17, go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father. That's the first time in the gospel of John that God is referred to as being their father, as well as being Jesus' father. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus paved the way for his followers to call God Abba. And to have that intimate father relationship with God. And the reason the prayer is starting with this is we've got to know who we're talking to. We've got to know who we're coming to. Are we coming fearfully to to God in the sky, angry with us, ready to beat us, ready, whatever, bad, negative pictures of God? Or are we coming to, to the one who is a safe and secure and strong place? because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can refer to God as Abba. And also because of the Holy Spirit. These lovely verses in Paul, I'm going to quote both of them, you know, from Romans 8 and Galatians 4, that this was a big deal for Paul who had grown up in that religious background where you didn't even say Yahweh. And he says in Romans eight fifteen, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership okay the reason son is emphasized is because the son got the family inheritance it's not about gender your adoption to sonship and by him by the spirit we cry abba father in galatians 4 when the set time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive. Again, adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. There's just beautiful work of the trinity here how can we refer to god as father because jesus died and rose again and purchased a family for god and because the spirit has been sent into us to cry out abba father once you start following jesus once the spirit has taken up residence in you it just feels wrong to refer to god as anything other than father just flows from you it's instinctive because the spirit has transformed your relationship with him so what's this father like well jesus said i haven't got the verse up it's in it's in john i think it's in john 14 when he's talking to is it philip and he says if you've seen me you've seen the father this, this one that we're invited to come and as we pray individually, as we pray corporately, the one that we come to and address as father, what's he like? He raises the dead. He has compassion on the prostitute and the widow, the bereaved. He calls women into his company as well as men. He has time for little children. He turns water into wine. This is what he's like. <laughs> he's like Jesus. And all that imagery, as I said, of 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 that little child running to the safe place of the Father—that's strong imagery. Hold on to that. Don't don't let hard theology or religion pull that away from you. That is the picture I believe Jesus wants us to see as we come to the Father. Whenever Rich was only about a few days old, I've told you this before, but. Tell you again, because it was a big moment for me. I was carrying her around the kitchen of our first house up in Castle Rise, um no doubt trying to get her to go to sleep, <laughs> um, playing the sleepy songs, and just walking around the kitchen, praying, brainwashing her with springsteen and God spoke so clearly to me, I can see myself, I can see exactly where I was on the kitchen floor and what direction I was facing holding her and God spoke to me so so clearly in that important moment in in life when you've just become a a dad and God said when she is just a little bit older she will hear me as in God being referred to as father and when she hears that you will be the point of reference for what that word means that's a heavy responsibility. Father. The other word that, that is associated with father, not only intimacy, but as I said at the start, phenomenal power. The reason that, that I say this, and I'm, I'm loving this, this is the, the wee bit of, of today that is sort of new or fresh for me, <clears throat> But the idea of God as as Father, although it's rare in the Old Testament, it does come up and it comes up sort of indirectly in Exodus chapter 4 where God tells Moses, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. God first, I think first. I don't think there's any point in Genesis or, or before this in Exodus where God speaks of his people as being his son and therefore reveals something of what it means for him to be father. And as we pray to father, We are laying hold on the God of the Exodus. That, you know, for a Jewish person to hear the word Father associated with God was not just the intimacy that we've just spoken of, it was the Exodus imagery. Father came and set his children free in the Exodus. When we pray Father, we are praying to the God who delivers people from slavery and bondage, who sets them free to be everything they were meant to be, to be able to leave Egypt and to go out and to worship him. When we, when you say that word, Father, let that imagery, I know all of you, when you pray, Father, the imagery of intimacy is there. And I'm telling you, marry with that, the imagery of phenomenal exodus power, because that's what the word Father would have invoked in, in the thinking of a Jewish person as they prayed it. God's people are people of freedom. They're people who are of victory over the enemy, who have been taken away from oppression. We pray, Father, we're praying to the one who has absolute power at his disposal, who unleashed the plagues against the Pharaoh and the enemies of, of his people, who were oppressing them and enslaving them. We are praying to the one who also in Exodus, look at these beautiful things about the God of the Exodus who is Father, that we pray to. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their sufferings, so I have come down to rescue them. That's who you pray to when you address Father. The one who sees, who hears, who is concerned, who is coming down, who has come down in Jesus Let that now join with the imagery of intimacy. Not just cuddly dad, you know, whose lap I climb up to for a place of safety and security and to ask him for stuff. But power. Redemption, deliverance, power. God's intimate relationship with us, the intimacy that we all know and enjoy is only possible because of the power that he has shown in history and never anywhere else as much as the cross where Jesus dies and rises from the dead to secure a family for God. So as we finish, Daryl Johnson, who is one of my favourite preachers and who's the guy who's facilitating the the preaching course that we're, we're, we're talking about doing over a few nights, if anyone's up for it. He says, on the throne of the universe is a father. And we are invited What a privilege. We are invited to address him. Not on our faces in fear, grovelling, snivelling wrecks before big angry God. We are invited to come boldly in prayer to the throne of grace. And address him as father. Intimacy and phenomenal exodus power is what we are asked to come to. Is what Jesus teaches us. Whenever the disciples wanted to learn how to pray, his first priority was that they would know who they were coming to. And he said the word Father. And the religious people just got turned inside out with rage that he would do such a thing. He's the only one who could change how we address God. And he did it by the cross, by the resurrection, and by the Spirit who now within us just cries out instinctively, Abba, Abba, Abba. Let's pray. Father, teach us, Holy Spirit, teach us to pray because we're only scratching the surface. Ask, Lord, that you would just take us so, so much deeper into intimacy with you and into that well of power that you have for you want to deliver people and you want to set people free and I ask Lord that that as we take a few weeks and dwell on your teaching the most important teaching ever on prayer maybe the most important 38 words ever spoken that you would take us to a new level that for those of us whose prayer life is flagging a bit that you would breathe on it breathe on it, that no one in this place would feel shame or discouragement or guilt, but that they would just feel excitement. I'm going back to my father. I'm going back to my father. I'm welcome on his lap. He has all power at his disposal. For those of us who, whose prayer lives feel good and feel strong, Father, that they'll get stronger stronger and stronger and stronger, more and more of that intimacy, more and more of that understanding of who you are, Father. And as a church, as we pray corporately, Lord, thank you for what what you appear to be doing, Lord, in just recent months. There's, There's more of a hunger and there's more of a cry being raised up in prayer. Lord, increase it, increase it, increase it, increase it. Please, Lord, we want to be aligned with you. So teach us in these weeks, teach us to pray. Don't let us come to the end of our our journeys and think, goodness, we prayed so little, we prayed so feebly, so weakly. Come and strengthen us, Lord. Teach us to pray as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.